Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. We're in the middle of chapter 20. And he's discussing the idea of the unity of God, the unity of Hashem. The ultimate, ultimate unity, ultimate meaning of when we say Hashem is one, is that Hashem is the only one, exclusive. Nothing else exists but Hashem. Hashem is alone after He created the world, just like He is alone before He created the world. Nothing changed. Creation doesn't change him and doesn't affect him to the extent that just like he's alone before he created the world, so too he's alone after he created the world. Nothing changed. Literally alone. How can you say Hashem is literally alone? We don't exist. There's Hashem and there's us. So it's true. We can understand, as Dr. Rebbe explains in the second part of Tanya, that we're not a dependent, independent existence. Our entire being is entirely dependent on Hashem. Hashem has to constantly support us, create us, sustain us. Without Hashem, we are nothing. So yes, we're nothing without Hashem. We're nothing other than the divine utterance, the divine speech, the divine energy. It's constantly creating us and sustaining us. So there's nothing other than Hashem. Because that is really, our entire existence is really, it's Hashem's. It's not that we exist. Now Hashem creates us, we exist, we're independent. We're constantly dependent on Hashem. And our very substance is nothing other than the, than the divine. So everything that we have is, is the divine energy. There's nothing else. That part we understand. But how can you say that Hashem is alone, just like He was alone before He created the world? Before He created the world, we weren't around. Now we're around. There's Hashem, and there's us, and there's you and I, and the table, and there's a universe. So yes, we're not an independent existence. So we're a dependent existence. But we're an existence nonetheless. I mean, we're, we're, we're dependent. We're not an illusion. The Torah itself says we're not an illusion. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. So how can you say that Hashem is alone? Just like He was alone before He created the world, He's alone after He created And that's what He's explaining in this chapter, chapter 20. That Hashem is alone, literally, just like He was alone before He created the world, because, because we are completely insignificant. Not only we are completely insignificant, even the divine energy that's creating us is completely insignificant to Hashem. Imagine a king giving a command, build a palace, build a home. And then the king moves on. They're busy building the home, he's busy in his bed, and he's busy, busy with other things. So that speech that he said, build a, build a home, 
that will be implemented and the people are busy building the home and it's but to the king that was just that was just one tiny insignificant event in the life of the king and he uses a more simple analogy when we speak the entire world was created with the ten divine utterances God spoke ten words in the world the entire universe heaven and earth came into being angels heaven and earth the entire universe came into being higher levels of consciousness material, spiritual everything the entire range of experience human experience angelic experience spiritual experience metaphysical experience all of this came into being through God's utterance ten words now, even when we speak ten words, what are ten words in comparison to a person? It's a non-event. It's insignificant. It's meaningless. Who cares? It's irrelevant. Are you affected by it? Are you changed by it? It's like before you spoke the ten words, and now you spoke the ten words, something changed. It's a non-event. It's a non-entity. Not that you didn't speak the ten words. Of course you spoke the ten words. It's not an illusion. It's not a maya. But it's insignificant. What are ten words in comparison to the million, the zillion words you speak in your lifetime? And the truth is, your capacity to speak is infinite. You're limited because we, our years are limited. But the soul is then reincarnated into a different, if it's reincarnated into a different body, the soul continues to speak. So the soul has an infinite amount of words. So what are ten words? Why does this soul have an infinite amount of words? Because words are nothing. Words are completely external, superficial to the person. For every word, you have thought. The thought that's behind it. And the thought is much more intimate with the soul than speech. That's why for every five minutes that you think, you need a half hour to express, to explain it. To express it in words. So what are ten words in comparison to the source of words? Which is thought. And you never stop thinking. You can stop speaking. But then you get to the personality, the character behind the words. What are words? Words are just vehicles of communication. That's all words are. Words are containers. They just contain what's the content of the word. The words communicate and convey what you're feeling and, what you're under- and your, your ideas, your understanding. And we don't love in English or French or Russian. Love transcends words. Comprehension, raw comprehension. Two plus two is four. In what language? I mean, it's, it's a pure concept. Pure comprehension transcends words. There are no words. And all the words in the world can't possibly express a genuine emotion. So words completely, the emotion and the intellect completely transcend words. So what are ten words in comparison to the, the person that's behind the words, the emotion that the words are conveying? And that's why for a person himself, you don't need words. Robinson Crusoe, there's no words. Who are you going to talk? You're not going to print the paper <laughs> to entertain himself. Words are completely external to the person. It's to communicate to someone outside of me, to communicate what's going on inside of myself, what I'm feeling, what I'm thinking. So to the person, words are completely superficial. It's not like you're investing a piece of yourself in the words. Words are nothing in comparison to them. It's not even like water off your back, because... Water, when you take water, draw water from the reservoir, you're taking a piece of water, you're taking a drop of water out of the reservoir. Ultimately, the reservoir is made up of a a certain amount of drops. So you are depleting the reservoir. But when you speak, 
words, you have an infinite, infinite amount of words. It's not like you're making a withdrawal. Why? Precisely because it doesn't affect the essence of the person. It's completely superficial to the person. And therefore you can speak and speak and speak and there's no limit. It doesn't exhaust you. So ten words are completely insignificant to the person. And if you go even deeper, the subconscious, the essence of the person. So what do words, the words express the person know? So the essence of the, the person behind the words remains a complete mystery. The person speaks, I haven't even scratched the surface of who the person is. The person speaks ten words, I have no idea who the person is behind those ten words. The person remains a complete mystery. Now where do these words come from? These words are your words. They come from within you. As a matter of fact, your soul is filled with words. Words come from a very deep root inside of us. Come from our subconscious. That's why you don't have to consciously work on your speech. When you're speaking, it's not like when you're playing a fiddle or you're playing a violin or you're playing piano. You have to know what you're doing. You have to consciously think, okay, let me move my lips. Let me move my tongue. You don't even realize what you're doing. You go through the entire life, you have no clue what happens when you speak, how you speak. God forbid a person loses his speech. Therapists will tell you it's the most difficult thing to work with a person who's, who's, who's challenged, who can't speak. To train the person to speak consciously is so is pulling here. It's almost impossible. It's so difficult. And yet we do it automatically, unselfconsciously. We don't even realize what we're doing. So where do the words come from? It's not a conscious effort. Obviously, words are rooted in the soul. And when you want to speak, you just speak automatically. And that's why every person has his own words, his own language. You can have two people expressing, two writers expressing the same idea, and each one will express it in their own unique way. The same idea, the concept is the same, but the words they use, the language they use, the metaphors, the similes, how they put it together, how, they, how it flows, how they communicate it, it's completely different. It's refreshing, it's unique, it's exciting, it's interesting. It's a unique individual stamp on the words that we speak. So words come from the soul. They come from within you. And yet while they're within you, you can't even find it. Where are these words? I don't even know I have words. I don't even know the words are there. Because it means nothing. It doesn't add anything. It's not like the words add anything to me. The words are nothing. They're there, but it's insignificant. It's not that words are an illusion. God forbid, the words are not an illusion. It's real. But it's insignificant. I can't even find it inside myself. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't add anything. So just like the soul is alone before he has the words, he's alone even after he has the words, after he speaks. Nothing changed. For the soul, nothing changed. For the person who's speaking the words, nothing changed, nothing happened. It's a non-event. So I remain completely unaffected. Just like I was alone before I spoke the words, I'm alone after I spoke, speak the words. So that's the meaning when we say that God is one. The belief in God means the belief in the unity of God, the belief that God is absolutely alone and unique and exclusive and nothing else exists besides God, even after God it creates the world and brings it into existence. It's not even like a dependent existence. Ain oid, nothing exists but God. Hashem is alone. God was alone before He spoke the words. Everything that exists in the world comes from Hashem's speech. The speech was part of Hashem. While it's part of Hashem, Hashem doesn't even know that He has these words, so to speak. Just like a person, you don't even feel the words. The words are there, we don't even feel it. You can't even find it. Because it means nothing, it adds nothing. It's completely, absolutely insignificant. 
So whatever the soul has, the words are inseparable from the soul. It doesn't add anything to the soul. The soul has words, but you can't even find it. So it's a non-event. So it's not like, just like the soul doesn't invest himself, itself in, in its words when a person speaks. It's completely external and superficial and completely insignificant to the soul. Multiply that infinite times when Hashem spoke ten utterances and brought the world into existence. That the entire world, everything that exists in this world, which is rooted in Hashem's speech. And Hashem's speech is rooted within Hashem Himself. It's completely as if it doesn't exist. In other words, creation, it's not like Hashem invests Himself in creation. When a teacher teaches, the teacher is engaged. The teacher is fully invested in his teaching. He's concentrating, he's present. It, it takes the kishkas out of him. The teacher is fully engaged. And he's changed and affected by that experience. When you take water out of the reservoir, the reservoir is affected by the, by the withdrawal of that drop of water. When Bill Gates withdraws a dollar bill from his ATM machine, from his bank account, his bank account was affected. It lost a dollar. When the ocean, you take a drop out of the ocean, a drop, the ocean has a drop less. But when Hashem creates, when you speak, it's not like your soul, you've invested your soul in the speech. You've lost a piece of yourself. You've invested a piece of yourself. It's nothing. Nothing happened. It's not an event. It's not an entity. I didn't lose anything. I didn't get it. It's meaningless. Because what part of that? It's not even, it's not even, a, it's not even an infinitesimal part of who I am. It's as if it doesn't exist. Not that it doesn't exist. It's as if it doesn't exist. As if it never happened. As if it matters. It doesn't matter. It makes no difference. So it's not like Hashem is invested in creation and Hashem is fully engaged. Hashem creation is not, it's not only incidental. It's not, only, it's not even an infinitesimal part of Hashem. It's a non-event. It's a meaningless. It's a non-event. It's a meaningless event. Hashem remains a complete mystery. So where does that leave us? <laughs> if the creation is as if it, not, does, if it is, is as if it never happened, because it's so insignificant and it's so meaningless and so irrelevant, and it's not even an infinitesimal part of Hashem. It's as if it doesn't exist. It's absolutely insignificant. And Hashem remains completely transcendent and remote. It seems to be an unbridgeable chasm between us and Hashem. And the answer is that there are ten words. Hashem creates the world with ten utterances. But there are also ten commandments. And ten commandments correspond to the ten words. Because yes, words are insignificant unless those words are will you marry me <laughs> those words those words mean everything and that's what the Ten Commandments are all about the very first word of the Ten Commandments is Anoichi which is an acronym for four Aramaic words Ano Nafshi Ksavis Yehavis I invested my soul into the Torah just like in marriage, you invest your essence. There's no part of you that's left out or left behind. Every part of you is present. Material, spiritual, emotional, psychological. 
every part of you is totally focused and concentrated and present. Not 99.9%. Can't have intimacy if it's 99.9%. It's 100% total focus and concentration. So Hashem has totally invested himself in Torah. And a Jew studies Torah, whether it's a five-year-old child studying a Pasuk Chumash and Rashi, whether it's the Talmudic genius and Kabbalistic genius who's studying the most intricate passage in the Talmud, the most puzzling piece of the Zohar. Hashem is completely present in that Torah. And a Jew totally connects with Hashem. When a Jew does a mitzvah, it's a link, it's a connection, it's a marriage. And that creates, that creates the connection. Yes, there's an unbridgeable chasm between us and Hashem. And nothing can cross that canyon. Not religion, not mysticism, not higher levels of consciousness, not angels. There's nothing in the universe that can help us even get one iota closer to God. But Hashem, God, can choose to get closer to us. And that's why the Jewish people are not called the choosing people. We're called the chosen people. It's not that we chose. Our choice means nothing. It's that Hashem chose us. And He chose to marry us. And he chose to throw us a line. And he chose to communicate to us. And he chose to reveal himself to us. And he's turning to us and saying, please do me do a mitzvah. When you do a mitzvah, he's creating a link, a connection with us. So when, so when a Jew studies Torah and does a mitzvah, this is reality. There is no other reality. Because nothing else is real. The most mind-boggling the highest levels of consciousness, the most exquisite art, the most heavenly music. Nothing in the world could even begin to bridge that chasm. The only thing that can connect us with reality, the only thing that's real and significant, that God invests His essence in, creation, the entire universe. God spoke ten words and it came into being. Even we speak ten words. It's a nothing. It's a non-event. It's a non-entity. It's insignificant. It doesn't add anything. It doesn't mean anything. It's a nothing. It's a non-event. So the whole of creation, the whole universe, spiritual and physical, is a, com- is a complete non-event. But Hashem invested His essence in us, in the Jewish people. He invested His essence in the Torah and in the mitzvah. And when a non-Jew follows the seven Noahide laws and becomes a righteous Gentile, like his ancestor Noah, and follows the seven Noahide laws as they're taught in the Torah by Moses, as taught by the Jewish people, then every human being, six billion people, have the opportunity to connect with reality and to really, that their lives are really become real. Other than, otherwise, for the Jew, without Torah, without mitzvot, we don't exist. It's absolute meaningless. It's absolutely meaningless. Absolutely nothing. It means nothing. It's, 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 there's no reality. And that's why for a Jew, to disconnect from God is not an option. That's why a Jew is ready to martyr himself. In the moment of truth, when you challenge. Are you going to deny your Jewishness? Are you going to bow down to the idol? 
You have a gun to your head. Or are you going to burn a Yoda de Fey? God forbid. Not an option for a Jew. It's not an option. Because this is reality. There is no other reality. Without God, we absolutely don't exist. It's meaning. There's no meaning. There's no existence. There's no reality whatsoever. So it's not a choice. It's not we're giving up life. That is choosing life. That is life. That is reality. God is the only reality. There's no other reality. Nothing else exists. Nothing else has an absolute reality. And every Jew knows this instinctive, on a gut level, because we have a Jewish soul. And whether we understand it or not, we know it. Every fiber of our being and every bone in our body may be dormant, may be asleep. We may go through our entire life feeling disconnected from our Jewishness, feeling consciously disconnected. But in the moment of truth, we wake up and it comes roaring, roaring to life. Because this is our truth. This is our reality. And we have no other reality. Deep down, there is no other reality. And all reality melts, melts away. Even the person who was addicted for decades. In that moment of truth, that entire life just melts away. And the only thing you care about at that moment is godliness. And you're ready to give up your life. You're ready to make ultimate sacrifice. You're ready to give up, throw your whole life. Make the ultimate sacrifice for this reality, for this truth. Deep down, this is our truth now, here and now, this moment. There is no other truth. This is the core of what a Jew is all about. This is the core of Jewish faith. Shema Yisrael. Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Hero Israel. God is our God. God is one. God is alone. God is exclusive. Nothing else exists besides God. There is no existence besides God. God is alone. Now, God fills all the worlds. There, are, there is nothing but God. God was alone before He created the world. He's exactly the same. Nothing changed. He remains alone. Because all of creation doesn't add anything to God, doesn't affect God. It's absolutely meaningless to God. Irrelevant and insignificant. On its own. But when we fulfill the divine purpose for which God created us, which is fulfill the Torah and the mitzvah to study Torah and to do mitzvah when we fulfill the divine plan for creation the divine blueprint for creation then our lives become real and significant and we become connected and plugged in and a non-Jew also has the opportunity to plug in not by becoming Jewish but by becoming a righteous Gentile and fulfilling the seven Noahide laws because it was taught at Sinai by motion, Moses. Then we plug into eternity. Then God invests His essence in us. And when faced with this choice, which, which, who wouldn't choose Torah? Who wouldn't choose Mitzvah? What else is there? Okay, let's learn inside. To illustrate from the soul of a human being, when a man utters a word, 
This single word is as absolutely nothing, even when compared only to his articulate soul, that is, the power of speech as a whole, which is a soul's middle garment, that is, organ of expression, namely its faculty of speech. The soul has three garments, thought, speech and action, of which speech is a middle one, with action being lower than it, and thought higher. One word has no value even in comparison with this faculty. The reason they're called garments is just like garments. You can take on, you can take off. Words are interchangeable. I can say 2 plus 2 is 5. I can't understand 2 plus 2 is 5. It's hard to change an emotion. It's hard to change a, 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 a comprehension. But you can change... You can change your clothes, just like you can't change a finger. <laughs> Let me take off my finger for the night and put it back on in the morning. You can't change your emotion. You can't change your... It's very difficult to change a real emotion or to change... You love someone. You can't suddenly change it. Okay, now I'm going to hate. Now I'm going to love. You can't change. It's very difficult to change. A conservative... Change a conservative to a liberal, liberal to a conservative. It's very difficult. Um, uh, change an atheist into a religious believer. Uh, it's very difficult because it's part of you. But clothes, garments, I can easily change. I can change garments in the morning and change them in the afternoon and put on different garments. Conservative. I can change because it's external to me. Speech is external. I can say, but it's not part of me. That's why they call garment. Thought is a garment, speech is a garment, action is a garment. It's not part of me. It doesn't reflect who I am. But nevertheless, there are three different garments. There's action and there's speech. So even in speech, even one word is nothing in comparison to the, to the ability of speech. Why? Since this faculty can produce an infinite number of words, and next to infinity, one word has no value whatever. In actual practice, there is a limit to the number of words one can speak. However, this is only because the physical organs involved in speech have a limited functional ability. The soul's capacity for speech is limitless. In comparison to infinity, a million and one are the same. A million is not one iota closer to infinity than one. Since you can speak <coughs> infinite amount of words, therefore it doesn't matter. You speak one word, ten words, it's insignificant. Or a hundred words, it's an insignificant event, it's a non-event. Surely then, this word has no value when compared to the soul's innermost garment, that is, that garment which is closest to the soul itself, namely, its faculty of thought, which is a source of speech and its life force. Since thought is higher and closer to the soul than is speech, this one word surely has no value in comparison with it. It goes without saying that this word is as naught when compared with the essence and the entity as opposed to the garments of the soul, these being its ten attributes mentioned above, chokhmah, bina, dat, and so on, that is, the seven emotional attributes, from which are derived the letters of thought that are clothed in one's speech when it is uttered. So here it refers to the personality and the character, the intellect and the emotions as the essence of the soul. The truth is, as he explains elsewhere, that even these are really not the essence of the soul. They're more like the body to the soul. Just like the body in relationship to the soul. You can't say that the body is the essence of the soul. The proof is when a person passes away, the soul returns to its source, returns to heaven. And the body is buried, and the body dis- ultimately disintegrates. So yes, while a person is alive, you can't, they're inseparable. You can't separate the body and the soul. A, uh, the body is not like a garment. You don't take off a body in that night and put it back on at the, in the morning or change, change bodies like you change garments. 
body and soul are inseparable from, from the moment you're born until the last breath. But nevertheless, and then you have the garments, so you cover the body. But nevertheless, you will not call the body the essence of the soul. The body, in a certain sense, is also is like a garment to the soul. It's not like a garment that you can take on and off, but it's separate from the soul, and it becomes inseparable from the soul. You don't know where the body ends, the soul begins, vice versa. But ultimately, you can differentiate the two. So too, you have the, the essence of the soul. Then you have the body of the soul. The mind and the emotions are like the body of the soul. Of course, they're inseparable from the soul. When you comprehend something, it's your soul that comprehends. When you feel something, it's your soul that feels. But emotion and intellect is not the essence of your soul. The essence of the soul doesn't change. The essence of the soul transcends intellect and transcends emotions. Transcends words altogether. The whole the emotions and the intellect are just the conscious part of us. But there's a whole subconscious part to us. There's a whole depth to us that we're totally unaware of. So the essence of the soul, to the essence, even intellect, our whole conscious self, which is words and speech and concepts and intellect and emotions, are also superficial to the soul and not really external to the soul. Just like the body is external to the soul. They're like the body, but they do become inseparable. So when you... Your conscious self, when you understand something, it's your soul that understands. And when you feel something, it's your soul that feels. But in relation to garments, like thought, speech, and action, just like in relation to garments, the body is your essence. It's like referring to your body as your essence. Because in relation to the suit that you're wearing and the clothes that you're wearing, clothes are interchangeable, the body isn't. So that's called your essence. But if you go deeper, of course, even your body is not your essence. Your body is just the body, the soul that's the essence. So too, within the soul itself, there's the soul of the soul, which is really the essence of the soul, which really transcends consciousness, which transcends you know, the whole concepts and words and, and intellect and emotions. The subconscious is the core, the essence of the soul. But we're not getting into that here. Here he's just in relationship to the external, to speech, thought, and action. He refers to the intellect and the emotion as your essence because they're not garments. They're not interchangeable. Continue. Since all of man's thoughts are either of an intellectual or an emotional nature, they derive from the soul's intellectual or emotional faculties. When one speaks, the letters of his thought descend to a lower level. For thought, too, like speech, consists of letters, except that the letters of thought are more spiritual and refined. Thus thought and speech share a common characteristic. There is a difference between speech and thought. But even speech and thought are from the same family. They're both garments. They both consist of words. The difference is when you speak, you speak to others. When you think, you speak to yourself. You communicate to yourself. How do I know what I'm feeling or what I'm thinking? I'm st- I think to myself. So it's a form of speech. It's a form of communication. It's just a, a more refined form of speech. Instead of speaking to others, you speak to yourself. No one knows what you're thinking. Well, when you speak, it's revealed, it's open. So, but the difference between thought, speech and thought, and emotion is a qualitative difference. Because emotions are beyond words. You don't love in a language, in words. Raw love is raw experience. It's experiential, transcends words. Transcends words. It transcends language. There are no words. And speech and thought is about 
trying to capture, to communicate, or to convey what's going on inside your heart. So you put it into words. So you're thinking, thinking about the love. You're thinking about it in words. But the love itself, the raw experience, really transcends words altogether. So when you get to the source of speech, which is thought, and the th- source of thought, which is the emotions, you're thinking about what you feel. Right? Your thoughts are occupied by your emotions, things that you love, you're thinking about it, the things that you hate, you're thinking about it. And so in comparison to the source of words, there are no words. Words are completely insignificant. Not only because quantitatively the amount of words that you speak, 10 words in comparison to the amount of words you could speak, just in, in the, the whole realm of emotions, there are no words. Words are meaningless there. Words are insignificant. There are no words. Words don't add anything. Words don't add one iota to the emotion. And no words in the world in the world could possibly adequately express a raw emotion. So it's totally beyond words. Okay, continue. But the ten attributes, Chachma, Bina, Dad, and so on, are the root and source of thought. And before being clothed in the garment of thought, they as yet lack the element of letters. The letters are formed only when one applies his thoughts to a particular idea or a feeling, as explained further. Since the intellectual and emotional soul powers are so subtle and amorphous that they cannot be defined even in terms of the spiritual thought letters, they are obviously of an altogether different, more spiritual order than thought, and the spoken word is surely without value in comparison to them. What follows is a description of the process whereby the letters of thought are formed. For example, when a man suddenly becomes conscious of a certain love or desire in his heart, before it has risen from the heart to the brain to meditate on it and ponder it, it has not yet acquired the element of letters. It is only a pure desire and longing for the object of his affection. All the more so before he began to feel in his heart a craving and desire for that thing when it was yet confined within the realm of his intellect, chokhmah, understanding, corresponding to bina, and knowledge, dad, meaning that the thing was known to him to be desirable and gratifying, something good and pleasant to attain and to cling to, as, for instance, to study a certain discipline or to eat some delicacy. Then, in this state of intellectual appreciation of the desirable object, Before the appreciation has even developed into an emotion, there are certainly no letters present in one's mind. So even when it comes to physical desires, first you have to be aware. If you're not aware, you may instinctively be drawn to materialism. But if you're not aware of it, if you don't know of it, you're not going to be drawn towards it. First, you have to start with awareness, comprehension. But comprehension is you understand that this is a good thing. You haven't yet made the emotional connection. The emotional connection is that this is good for me. You translate that concept. This is a wonderful thing, a good thing. Now you bring it home. This is good for me. I like this. I'm attracted to this. I want it. So that, then you have a full, full-blown emotion. Intellect is more abstract. It's the awareness, the knowledge, the concept. This is good in general. It's a good thing. Then you bring it closer to home. It's good for me. And then you go back to your mind, your brain, and start thinking about it. Okay, how am I going to acquire this? What am I going to do about this? What's the plan? I like this, but how do I get from here to there? There's a plan. I have to do that to figure it out. 
now you're starting to think about it. But the raw concept, the raw emotion, transcends words. There are no words. You understand something, there are no words. It's the pure understanding. When you have a pure emotion, it's a pure emotion. There are no words. I love it. I'm attracted to it. There are no words. Words only begin to formulate once you start thinking about it in a practical way. So what am I going to do about it? Then you start forming words. But the raw concept itself, there are no words. Not that the words are not there. The words are there, but they're not yet formulated. Words are rooted even, even in the subconscious, but you're completely oblivious to them. Even when you start thinking about the words, where do these words come from? These words don't just come out of thin air. You are the source for these words. You are thinking of these words. You come up with these words. So obviously the words are there, but you're completely oblivious to them. It means nothing. All that you experience is the raw, the raw concept, the raw idea, or the raw emotion. And then you start thinking about it in practical terms, then you really start feeling the words. The words become prominent. When you're lost in deep thoughts, when you're dealing with the raw idea, you don't even feel the words. You don't even have the words. It's only later on that you start formulating the language. How am I going to say this? Or how am I going to... You start thinking about it in the practical ways. How am I going to get this? What am I going to do about it? It's only then that the words become prominent, come to the forefront. Now I have to put it into words. I want to implement this, if I want to acquire this practically, I have to start thinking in words. But that comes later. At the source, the pure intellect and the pure emotion is beyond words. There are no words. Only after the desire and craving have already descended into his heart, that is, after they have developed into emotions through the stimulus of his wisdom, understanding and knowledge, and only after they have ascended once again from the heart back to his brain to think and meditate on how to implement his desire by actually obtaining that food or actually studying that subject, it is only at this point, when one applies his thoughts to implementing his desire, that letters are born in one's mind, corresponding to the language of each of the nations. We employ these letters when speaking and thinking about everything in the world. That is, each of us thinks in his own language. Pure feeling, however, that is, feeling that has not reached the applied implemental stage of thought, transcends differences of nation and language, since it does not express itself in letters. All the differences between language, culture... You know, you can read a novel in a totally strange culture, a foreign culture, and yet you can relate to the characters, you can relate to the story, because when you're dealing with raw emotions, you're dealing with love, you're dealing with emotions, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what language. You don't love in French or in Russian or in, or in the 18th century, the 19th century, or the 14th century. It's, you're dealing with a raw emotion, a raw experience that transcends all language, all culture, 
styles. You're dealing with something real. The different languages are very external, very superficial. The language is very external, it's very superficial. When you strip away the externals and you get to the, the, uh, the core, core emotion or the core intellect that's why a communist scientist had a perfect rapport with his capitalist counterpart because all the differences that transcends language and culture when you're dealing with the raw concepts raw intellect raw philosophy what it doesn't matter you're talking about brain power you're talking about an idea an understanding transcends time, it transcends space, it transcends culture, it transcends millenniums. You're dealing with the raw understanding. Either you understand or you don't understand. It makes sense or it doesn't make sense. The raw concept transcends words and language. It's only when you try to implement the concept. That's when you come up with language and words, and words come to the forefront. So the more external something is, the more wordy it becomes. The higher up you get, the less wordy you are the less verbal the less that's why when you get to the first the highest level of human consciousness the creative mind creative brain there's very little words hardly any words you know that eureka moment that, that, that vague fuzzy that first flash of brilliance that first insight that creative moment there are no words uh, you, you don't even have words for yourself you can't even explain it to yourself you just have that sense that feeling that, that flash a bolt of lightning that eureka moment but that's filled with potential. Everything that follows all comes from that seed, from that, from that potential. And then it gets fleshed out. And as you go further away from the source, from the soul, it becomes wordy and wordier. You know, we've, we've never had so many words like we have today. <laughs> and we have so little soul, so little light, penetration, illumination. We're so verbose. We're so wordy. You know, and but but the higher you get, the closer you get to the soul, it's less and less verbose, less and less wordy. There are no words. We're dealing with the raw intellect. There are no words, and we find also in the development of the Torah, as you get the higher you get, the deeper you get. They were, they were brief. The mission is written very brief. For every paragraph in the mission, you have pages and pages of Talmud. Everything in the Talmud was hinted at in the mission, but one word in the Mishnah hinted at it, a whole page of Talmud. Because they were an earlier generation, a greater generation, a higher generation. And therefore, they, had, they saw. They had the vision. They saw. And they, they didn't need so many words. It's in one word, they captured the whole thing. They didn't need to be so verbose. As we get farther away from the soul, you need more and more words to try to explain, to try to capture, and everything becomes verbose and lengthy. lengthy. It's like in the human body. The feet. Biggest organ. The feet has one... one Capacity to walk, to dance. The head, which has so many <laughs> organs, the most precious organs, the mind and the, the sight and smell and hearing and speech, is the smallest. Good, good things come in small packages. The greater it is, the smaller it is physically. The greater, the more soul, the more life it is, the smaller it is physically. The, the less soul there is, the bigger it is physically. So words, the more, the further you get from the source, it becomes more and more verbose, more wordy. 
And that's why even within speech itself, for every minute of thought, you need five minutes of speech. And thought is much quicker. And then, when you get to the source of thought, there are no words, and so time slows down. The more disconnected you are from the source, the less spiritual you are, the more physical you become, time slows down. And a higher realm, and a more spiritual realm, they, they, they can see things that are 10 years ahead because what, hap- what, needs, what we need in our frame of reference, we need 10 years for it to develop. In a higher frame of reference, it already happened because everything happens there much quicker. Just like speech and thought. To verbalize a thought may take you five minutes, but in thought, it happens in one minute. So in thought, you already have the whole thing, but when you bring it to a lower level, when you get further away from the soul, to express it and to articulate it takes many more words and time slows down and it takes much longer. (coughs) So everything that exists in this world has a source. So God spoke and brought the world into existence. The world as we know it, time, space, concepts, the world as we know it. But when you go deeper, the level of Hashem's God's thoughts, you also have it's the same words, but the words are on a much higher level, on the level of thought. And therefore, everything there is much more spiritual and things happen much quicker. That's why holy people who have divine inspiration are able to connect with the divine world of thought. And that's why they're able to know what's going to happen in 15 years from now. Not necessarily because they're prophets, because they're able to see it already happened. And that level, whatever's happening in this world already happened. And a level of thought already happened, so they're able to see ahead. And then you go deeper. You get to God's emotion, so to speak, that totally transcends time and space. There are no words. The raw emotion, and then the source of emotion, the raw intellect, the raw concept. And then you get even deeper, the subconscious. And, the, and then you go even beyond that, the essence of the person. And even there you have letters. Because when you speak, you're speaking, the letters come from you, they don't come from thin air. And a person speaks, and we speak unselfconsciously. We're not even aware of what happens when we speak. So obviously, speech comes from a very deep part. It's not a conscious thing. Speech comes from our subconscious. And that's why speak is very, speech is very unique, individual. Everyone has their style of speech. Everyone has a unique individuality. Speech has a unique stamp to it. But while they're within your essence, you don't even know you have those words. So you're totally oblivious to the words. So it's like you speak unselfconsciously. You're not even aware of what's happening when you speak, how you speak. The words are there, the letters are there, but you're totally unaware of it because it means nothing. It's insignificant. It's irrelevant. It's there. It doesn't add anything to you. So it's there, it's within you, but you can't even find it. It means nothing. It doesn't add anything to you. It's a non-event, it's a non-entity. The letters are a non-entity. The person who's speaking the letters, who's the source of the letters, and while the letters are within you, they're a non-entity. You don't even feel it. It's only as you start thinking about it, after you're aware of the concept, and then you bring it down to the level of emotions, and then you once again start thinking about it, okay, how am I going to implement it? And that's when you become aware of the letters. And then you start speaking about it, and then you really feel the letters. Even the other person feels the letters. Then you implement it. So then the letters become prominent. Then you feel the letters. Then the letters have a certain, a certain entity. But when you get to the root and the source of the letters, when the letters are included within you, while the letters are within you, 
The letters are within the emotions, while the letters are within the intellect, while the letters are within the subconscious, or the essence of your soul. The letters are there, but they're not there. They're insignificant. It's as if it doesn't exist. They're absolutely nothing. It means nothing. It has no value. It doesn't add anything to you. All there is is the soul. It's all there. The letters are there, but it's all there, all, all there is is the soul. There's nothing else. And the letters are completely insignificant. So, so too, everything that exists in this world is nothing other than the divine letters, the divine words. And just like each letter is a different shape, channels the energy a certain way, so too, the letters, the divine letters, channel the divine energy and give each entity its unique characteristic, its nature, its heads. So this entire universe, which is made up of the different letters and different combination of letters, the divine letters and divine energy, everything exists within Hashem. Hashem speaks these letters. So these letters existed within Hashem. So creation doesn't add anything to Hashem. Because whatever Hashem spoke already, already was within Hashem. And while they're within Hashem, can't even find it. It's, it's, it's not as if it's not there. Because it means nothing. It has no value. It doesn't add anything to God. It's absolutely nothing. God is alone. Just like when you have the emotion, you have the intellect. All you have is the emotion. You don't have the letters. The letters are there, but you don't have them. It means nothing. They don't add anything. So I don't even feel the letter. I just have the raw emotion. Nothing else exists besides the raw emotion. The letters are there, but they don't exist. When you go deeper in the intellect, how much more so when you go deeper, subconscious, the essence of the soul, the person who's speaking. The letters are there, but they don't, they don't exist. So everything that exists in this universe, from the amoeba down to the smallest, to the highest level, everything is nothing other than the divine utterance. The divine utterances go back to the divine speech, and divine speech goes back to the divine emotion. Divine emotion goes back to the divine intellect, and divine intellect goes back to the divine subconscious, the kesser, which goes back to the essence of God. So everything is within God, and yet, when they're within God, you don't even find the letters. You can't even find that energy in those letters to create the world. It's as if it doesn't exist. All there is is God. Nothing else exists. There is nothing else. Nothing changed. Just like God was alone before he created the world, God is absolutely alone after he creates the world. He had absolutely no existence. No relevance, no reality, no value. Absolutely meaningless, insignificant in comparison to the essence of God. God remains totally unaffected, unchanged. Nothing happened. Not like God created the world. Well, before God was alone, and now he created the world. Creation is a non-event. It doesn't capture God. It doesn't, doesn't invest his essence in it. It doesn't even invest even an infinitesimal part of himself. It's an absolutely meaningless event. He spoke. And where were these letters before he spoke? They're within God. Nothing changed. And uh, the next chapter, he'll explain that it's even more than when a person speaks. When a person speaks, there is a difference before he speaks and after he speaks. Before he speaks, before he has the thought, the language, the words. Okay, then you can say that the words don't exist. They're within 
within the emotion, that within the raw emotion, that within the raw intellect, and within the raw intellect, within the raw emotion, there are no words. Don't exist. Of course, they're there because later on you do speak and you find those words. They're there. Somewhere they're there, but it's as if it doesn't exist because it doesn't mean anything. It has no value. It doesn't add anything. But when you do speak, then you have words. But in relation to God, when God speaks, even after He speaks, it's like before He speaks. That God's words never, never leave Him. So even after He speaks, the words are still never left God, and they're still within God. Just like when a person, before you speak, before you think, the words are there, but the words are totally one, inseparable from the source, which is you. And all there is is you. There is nothing else. There are no words. So even when after God speaks, it's like before He speaks. So the entire letters and words in, which creates the entire universe are within God, like before He speaks. And therefore they don't exist. All there is is God. And therefore God is alone. Nothing happened. Nothing changed. God is alone after He creates the world, just like He was alone before He created the world. Absolutely one. As if we absolutely don't exist. No value. Insignificant. I don't understand the Pasuk in Perkyabas that says the world was created with ten utterances, and it could have been created with, by one, but it was ten to bring retribution upon the wicked. Where does that connect with? So the question, the, the question is: Is that is that a reason to create, to, to punish? It's not a reason to create. The um, it doesn't mean to punish the wicked. It means the wicked have to pay back. Retribution, he says. The putter also comes from the root word to pay. Um, they have to take this energy, this chaotic energy, and they have to bring it back home. They have to reconnect it with its source, reconnect it with, with Hashem. The wicked. Yeah. They have to take this chaotic energy and they have to bring it back to its source. The ten utterances represent the orderly world that God creates. God created an orderly world, a rational world, uh, a world of law and order. The one represents the world of chaos, a world that's beyond order. While the ten represents the sober, mature, settled world. And the one represents like the world of chaos, the, the youthful world, world of chaos versus the sober maturity. And why did God create the world? First, he created the world of chaos. And then he created the world of order, just like creation. First, God created 2,000 years of chaos, which had the sin of Adam, Chava, sin, the sin of the flood, the generation of the flood, the sin of the Tower of Babel. And only then, Abraham comes along, then God gives us the Torah, the birth of the Jewish people, the Torah, law and order. So why does God allow first, 
first entry into the world is chaotic. And only then do we have a world of mending, a world, a settled world, a mature world. And the answer is because God loves that energy. That energy is very, the chaotic energy is a very powerful energy. The purpose is not that we should become lifeless law and order machines that were lifeless and everything is very sober, but there's no life, there's no energy. God loves the energy of the world of chaos. It's a very powerful energy. The purpose is to channel that energy, but to channel it in a mature way. To have the best, best of both worlds. To maintain that the youthfulness, that restlessness, that feeling of unsettled, that feeling of that seeking and that searching and that, and that zest for life and that uh, childlike innocence. And you should be bursting with ideas and motivated, but you should marry it with the maturity and the wisdom and experience of maturity. So then you can have the dreams, and then you also have the experience to implement those dreams. So Hashem wants us to, to harness, not to destroy that energy, but to harness that energy. Lipara means not to punish the wicked. Lipara means they have to pay back. When they abuse that energy, that chaotic energy, that wild, alien energy, and they abused it, so God wants us instead to take that energy and to harness it in a positive way. That's why He starts out with the wicked. That's the whole purpose of creation. The whole purpose of creation is to take that energy and to harness it, harness it in a, in a, in a positive way. So that's why God first created the world. The world has the potential to be created in one it represents the world of chaos. There's no differentiation, there's no boundaries, there's no limitation. And then, instead, and God created the world with ten utterances, very orderly, very defined and limited world. But the challenge is to take that energy of one, to take that energy, chaotic energy, and to channel it in the right way, like the Russia who's more in touch with that energy because the Russia lives that type of life no boundaries, no limits that chaotic life so to take that energy and to pay it back and to bring it back to holiness and to marry that energy together with the mature energy and that's, and that's, that's the ultimate purpose that's why the mission states that first but talking about the world of chaos there was a, a break in the world of chaos, a shattering of the vessels. So the vessels are like letters. And Hasidus explains it's like you take letters and you scramble the letters. So when you speak orderly, the letters have meaning. When you take the letters and scramble the letters, it's meaningless. It doesn't say anything, it doesn't convey anything. Says that's the world of chaos. That was the, the shattering of the vessels which created our world. Because God speaks and the world comes into being. But when God speaks and we understand what He's speaking, then God is communicating and He's conveying something to us. And we know that there's a communicator. We know that there's someone who's speaking. There's a connection between the words and the speaker. But what happens is that the letters with which God created the world became scrambled. 
And it's gibberish. It's meaningless. It's like, it looks gibberish to us. We don't see a connection. We don't see a meaning. We don't see a content. We don't see there's a communicator. We don't, we don't make a connection. We look at this world. This world is made up of everything in this world that has a divine energy that's creating God's speech and God's letters. But since everything is jumbled and scrambled, we don't connect it to its source. We don't connect it to the speaker. And that's why this world is totally disconnected. We don't feel, we don't sense anything divine, anything godly, any, any origin. So much so, you can go through, you, people go through their entire life and deny that there is even an origin. There is a creator. Because the words, the words and the letters are all jambled. It's gibberish, like a puzzle. And we are the puzzle solvers. We, the mission of a Jew, is to do the, the one that, the one that we like, the, uh, the crossword puzzles. <laughs> to figure out, to put the letters back together, to figure out the puzzle and put it all together and, and make sense of it. Now, suddenly you can start hearing Hashem's voice again. You start hearing the communication, the communique. And it makes sense again. Now we have chaos theory. <laughs> Not a theory. <laughs> we have chaos, period. Um, but the closer you get to the, to the source, the less and less prominent are the letters and the more and more prominent are the content. But when you get to the source itself, there are no letters. Not that there are no letters. The letters are there. But there are no letters. You don't feel it. You don't sense it. It's as if it's not there. It's insignificant. It has no value. It's absolutely nothing. All there is is the raw experience. The letters don't add anything, don't mean anything. And everything the letters have is nothing other than the experience, just conveying, communicating what the experience is. There, is. there is nothing else. So it means nothing. Not that there are no letters. Letters are there, but they mean nothing. They don't add anything. All there is is the experience. How much more so when you go to the source of intellect, the subconscious, the core, the essence of the person. So the entire creation, everything that was created with God's letters and God's words, when you go to the source, the way the letters are within God, the way everything exists within God, it's not like there's God and now there's God and there's a table. There's God, now there's God and there's an angel. There's God and now there's God and there's a soul. Everything that exists Everything comes from it's nothing other than God's speech, God's letters. Where were those letters? Where do these letters come from? They come from within God. While they're within God, they don't exist. They have no existence, no value, no meaning, nothing. Insignificant. So does God have to invest his essence in speaking and creating us? It's a meaningless event, a non-event, a non-entity. God was alone before he created the world, he's alone after he created the world. Nothing changed. Nothing was added. Nothing changed. Absolutely alone. Absolutely nothing. It's a very sobering thought. <laughs> We're absolutely nothing. It's, it's almost impossible for us to comprehend, to grasp it, because it challenges our very assumption of existence. But no one questions their existence. The Jew questions our very existence. Our existence feels so solid. Our egos, our sense of self, of I, our place in the universe, the universe itself. The Jew challenges all those assumptions. The universe, place in the universe, I, what I, what ego, what universe. We're absolutely nothing. Valueless, insignificant. All that, exi- all that is is God. There is nothing else. This is so counterintuitive. It's not just the detail. It's, it's, this touches my, the essence of who I am, my very being. 
And the two challenges, very being itself, existence itself, ego itself, which is why the Jew is so threatening. That's the ultimate source for anti-Semitism. Consciously or subconsciously, the universe is very threatened by the Jew because the Jew challenges the very assumption of, of being, of existence, of ego, of I, of universe, my place in you. And that's very, very threatening. It's one thing, you like my art, you don't like my art. You like my book, you don't like my book. You like my creativity, you don't like my creativity. It's another thing when you challenge the value of my very being. And my very being, my very existence has no value. And to the Jew, yes. We don't respect art per se. You can be the most brilliant mind in the world. You can have the highest levels of consciousness. For the Jew, there's only one criteria. Are you a good person? Are you not a good person? Are you a moral person? Or are you not a moral person? I don't care how brilliant you are. You have absolutely no value, no meaning, and no significance. Unless you're connected with the one reality, the only reality, connected with Hashem. Are you leading a righteous life? You're not leading a righteous life. Are you leading a moral life? You're not leading a moral life. Are you leading an ethical life? You're not leading an ethical life. Are you leading a life of goodness and kindness or not? Are you connected with Hashem, with God or not? That's the only criteria. Nothing else matters. Nothing else means anything. Who could pass such a test? It's very simple. (laughs) If you do the right thing, what does God want from us? It's not asking of us anything earth-shattering. Be good. Be kind. And doing a mitzvah. Doing a mitzvah. <laughs> it's God asking of us earth. not asking for us anything earth-shattering. It's asking us very basic, simple, fundamental things. And that's why in Judaism we never confuse spirituality with God. Kabbalah, mysticism, we never confuse that with God. All the deepest meditation in the world and the highest levels of consciousness and the angels and the deepest philosophy and the most exquisite art and the most beautiful heavenly music, it means nothing. Yes, maybe it all boils down to God wants from us something very simple. Just do the mitzvah, do the right thing, give tzedakah, be a mensch. Yes, that's what it boils down to. And be connected with God. That's all that is. That's all that matters. Nothing else is. Nothing else exists. Nothing else matters. Art, music, philosophy, religion, mysticism. It's the mitzvah. It's the deed. It's the action. That's what connects us. Because we don't connect with God. It's impossible for us to connect with God. A human being cannot connect with God. An angel can't connect with God. God connects with us. It's the only way. God chooses us. We don't choose. God chooses us. God is. And God chooses us. And He gave us 613 opportunities to connect with. What a gift. What a privilege. And and we're excited. We do the mitzvah with excitement, pleasure. And that's the only way. There is no other way. And this explains why in the Torah, the very first, our very first introduction to the very first Jew, Abraham, in the third Torah portion, 
in the beginning of the third millennium, after the 2,000 years of chaos. God tells Abraham, Go on to you. It was his first mitzvah. And the commentaries asked, Nachmanides asked, Why no introductions? Who is Abraham? Who is Abraham? Why is God speaking to Abraham? Noah has a whole introduction. Noah is righteous. And then God speaks to Noah. We know why God is speaking to Noah. Because he was righteous. He was moral. He was ethical. The whole world was hopelessly corrupt. He built the ark for 120 years. And he couldn't get a single, if you look in the Guinness Book of World Records, the world's worst salesman, he couldn't get a single customer. 120 years. The only one he saved was himself, his wife, and his three sons, and his three daughters-in-law. So can you imagine the greatness of Noah, that he was able to maintain his integrity and his morality and his ethics and spirituality despite living in such a hopelessly corrupt generation. Everyone was so corrupt, he couldn't even convince a single person to join him to lead a moral, ethical, and spiritual life. So now we know why God is speaking to him. What a giant of a man. He single-handedly saved the world. He was like Adam. We all descend from Noah. Every human being that's alive is a descendant of Noah. That's why it's called Noahite. But Abraham, there's no introductions. Out of nowhere, God is speaking to Abraham. Go to the land of Israel. The land I will show you. Why? And the Rebbe explains, because the Torah is telling us, this is what differentiates Judaism. Noah was a, a prophet, a great man. Created the image of God, but he was not a Jew. Abraham was the first Jew. This is what differentiates Judaism from Noah. That the whole foundation of Judaism that although Abraham had a rich past, by the time God spoke to Abraham, he was already collecting social security for five years. He was 70 years old. He recognized God at the age of three. He sat in jail for for decades, sacrificing his life in Stalinist Russia and on on the Nimrod. He was thrown into the fire. He was ready to give up his life for his belief in God. And the Torah doesn't even breathe a word of it. Just a hint, hints at it. doesn't even mention. Because all of that is meaningless. The foundation of Judaism is a recognition that all our greatness, all human greatness, all human achievements, no matter how profound, no matter how sublime, no matter how great, how deep, how intense, is absolutely meaningless to God. A million is not one iota closer to infinity than one. The greatest mystic, the greatest scholar, the greatest not one iota closer to God than the worst sinner. There's no connection. There's an unbridgeable gap in gang. It's not like God invests himself in creation. The whole of creation is an insignificant event to God. It's a meaningless event. God doesn't even invest even the slightest part of himself. He speaks. What is speech? Just like when we speak. It means nothing. So how do we connect with God? And this is the foundation of a Jew's life. This is the journey of a Jew. The foundation of a Jew's life, the beginning of a Jew's journey is a recognition we don't connect with God. A human being does not connect with God. God connects with us. When God chose to speak to Avram, and He gave him a commandment, that creates the connection. That creates the link. God threw us a lifeline. He threw us a rope. When He told him, Lech lecha, go, He gave him his first mitzvah. That's where your connection begins. Everything that happened till now, the last 60, 67 years, is meaningless. Now your connection begins. Now you're touching the divine. Now your life is real. Now you're touching the absolute essence of God. Now you're connecting with 
reality. And that's why Maimonides says, a non-Jew follows the seven Noahide laws. Independently. Not because it was given in the Torah, because it was given at Mount Sinai, because it was given through Moshe, because it was given to the Jewish people. He's just doing it because it makes sense to him. It's logical. It has no value. It's only when he's doing it because it's connected to Torah, it's connected to the Jewish people, it's connected to the divine essence, the revelation, the Sinai, where God revealed his essence. And God married the Jew and chose the Jew and invested his essence in us and in Torah and mitzvah. That's when he plugs into eternity. That's when his life truly becomes significant and meaningful. Otherwise, as we just learned, Existence is absolutely, we absolutely don't exist. It's absolutely meaningless. Absolutely no value. You unplug, you disconnect. And that's why the Torah says if a, if a person does not fulfill the seven Noahide laws, it, he's as good as dead. Not that the court is going to put him to death, but his life is dead. There's no life, there's nothing there, there's nobody home. It, it, it's meaningless. It has absolutely no value and no worth and absolutely meaning. If you're not plugged in to the divine essence, if you're not plugged in to the seven Noahide laws, a non-Jew is not plugged into the seven Noahide laws, who's not fulfilling his divine purpose, then the truth is, from God's point of view, and that's the only point of view, it's meaningless. His whole life is meaningless. It's as if he's dead. It's absolutely irrelevant, meaningless, insignificant. It means absolutely nothing. But when you do plan, and you are, live, follow in the footsteps of Noah, and you live the life of a righteous Gentile, and you follow the ten, universal Ten Commandments, the seven Noahide laws, with all the hundreds of details, you lead a moral, ethical, and spiritual life, then you plug into that divine core essence. Then your life becomes meaningful. Then you have a shear in the world to come. Then you will be resurrected. Then you plug into eternity. Then your life has real meaning. And that's why a Jew is ready to martyr himself. Because it's not an option. To be disconnected is not an option. There is nothing else. Be continued.